All right, let's have a prayer together. Oh Lord, the world is a busy place. Our worlds are busy. Sometimes we think we're too busy, and we probably are. Sometimes we're looking for something to do, and you lay before us so much that we can do, and probably should do, not necessarily for ourselves, but for the sake of others. We acknowledge all these things as we take some time out of the time that you gave us so that we can spend time with you, with fellow followers of Jesus, with people who followed you a long, long time ago, but still their experience, their wisdom, their failure, their learning, all of it is contained within the pages of the scriptures that you give us. So come, please. Again, be with us, open us to old truth that we've forgotten, to new truth that we've never learned, open us especially to your healing and renewing and life-giving presence in the power of your spirit. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, last, we- oh, one last thing. Did you, did you say this, Terry? I don't know if you said this. This is our last gathering for 2023. We will resume our gatherings the first full week of January, not the week of the 1st of January, because that week actually begins with December 31st. So you will celebrate New Year's Day on Monday, and we will not meet that week. We'll meet the following week. I believe the date is the 10th. Thank you very much. I was getting ready to say the 9th, but you said the 10th, and that made me look good. Thank you. Yeah, that's what the paper says. If it's down in print, it is true. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So last week with Jan here, um, we essentially came to the end of all of the stories uh, of the escape or the release of the Hebrew slaves from Egypt and all the things that developed out of that, right? The final act, God's destruction of the Egyptian army and the celebration of the Hebrew slaves, now free people. Sometimes I say the Hebrew people because their consciousness of being a nation called Israel had been talked about but it was never fully solidified in the people, we believe, until their time of wandering in the wilderness. So sometimes I say the Hebrew people, sometimes I say the nation of Israel. So we finished that, that episode in this long story, and now we're moving into the next set of stories having to do with Israel's wandering in the wilderness. Wandering in the wilderness. And we're going to learn a lot. No surprise there. No surprise there. Um, Let me encourage us as we read and as we think about this, as I always do, to try to put ourselves back into their situation, which means you have to try to forget what you know. Does that make sense? Try to put yourself... Yeah, I... Forgetting is much easier for me these days, Connie. It actually is. I I want you to forget that you know the end of the story or that you know what happens in the story. Try to put yourself into the place of the typical Hebrew person 
the typical Jew right then, uh, who has gone through all these amazing experiences, and now you're finally free and you're not worried about Egypt anymore, and Egypt is behind you, so to speak, and now you're looking in front of you at what is out there, and you don't know. You literally don't know. You have no clue what's coming next. That's actually, that, that state of being, if you will, is, is a permanent state of being for all of us. Is it not? Right? You know, how many of you have plans for later today? Of course, we all have plans. None of it may happen. None of it may happen. You know, a meteorite might strike five seconds from now. I doubt it, but it might, okay? So let's try to put ourselves back into the place of those people at that time, and that will help us understand a little bit more about the human dynamics of this story. So let's read verses 22 through 27 of chapter 15. Then Moses ordered Israel to set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. That is why it was called Marah, which means bitterness. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he put them to the test. He said, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give heed to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will not bring upon you any of the diseases that I brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. Okay. This little story actually has uh, most of the theological themes within it of the next uh, pieces that we're going to be looking at today. So we're going to spend a little time with this one. All right. The people set out from the Red Sea, right? Um, You might think about uh, Jed Clampett packing up Granny on the truck and all their possessions, and they, they head off to California, right? Um, they go three days into the wilderness, three days, and they can't find any water. How long can a human being live without water? About three days, right? What? Six days. Six days? Is that what it is? Okay. I've heard various and sundry answers. I like six better than three. I can't imagine not having a drink of water for more than Three hours, much less, yeah, six days. So, a crisis. We have a new crisis. Yet another crisis, right? How many of you would agree with this statement that life is a series of continual crises? Okay? If any of you do not experience life that way, I would love to visit with you. There we go. Life is a series of continual crises. You get through one crisis... And there's the next crisis. Now, the next crisis might not be as serious as the last crisis. Great. 
But believe me, a serious one is coming, right? So this is the new crisis for the Israelites. They don't have any water. So what is their first response? They complain. They complain, right? Moses, it's your fault. How do we look at that? How do we look at that? Moses, it's your fault that we're freed from Egyptian slavery now. And we have to take care of ourselves. I mean, there's all kinds of ways you can look at that, right? It is a common theme throughout the scriptures that we complain about whatever the current crisis is. That's our first response. Why me, O oh Lord? Now, I'm not picking on these people. I'm merely using them as an illustration of all of us, right? All of us. They complain. So... Moses does what? Moses goes straight back to God. Now, sometimes we'll hear language that Moses goes back and complains to God, right? They complain to me, now I'm going to go complain to God. The buck stops with God. Here it's just Moses goes to God. He cries out to the Lord. He said, God, what are we going to do now? That's been kind of Moses' permanent state of being, hasn't it been? What am I going to do now? Okay? And the Lord does what? He shows Moses a piece of wood and Moses throws it into the water, and the water becomes sweet. Okay? What would we call this? A miracle. A miracle. Absolutely. We're going to encounter a few more miracles in this piece of Scripture that we have for today. What are they? Manna, bread, quails, and then more water, and then more water. Okay? Let's look at all of these miracles, so to speak. Um, as is so often the case, especially since, um, I want to say the 1500s, maybe the 1400s, and especially going into the 16 and 1700s, when people began uh, in a widespread sort of fashion to take science seriously uh, and, and to look at all the stories of the Bible the so-called miracles of the Bible, and say that couldn't possibly have happened. We don't, we don't have any, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't work. You can't just take a piece of wood into the water and, and, and throw it into water and make it sweet, right? That's not very scientific. Um, in the period of the Enlightenment, people started going back to these stories and saying, well, I don't believe in a miracle, but what was really happening there? And so a lot of research has been done in the last several hundred years and one of the stories that's come out is that um, in the Middle East, there is a certain kind of tree that grows, and I don't have the name of the tree in my head. I don't remember if I put it into my notes or not. But this, the wood of this tree has certain chemical properties and such, that, such that when you put it into brackish water, bitter water, so to speak, there's a chemical interaction between the water and the wood, and it actually makes the water more drinkable. Isn't that interesting? Okay? So some people say that this miracle, if you will, of putting the water in the wood was not a miracle. It was just a discovery of, of some way that, that Moses could fix the water. Okay? Well, now there's an interesting question. Who made the wood? Okay. 
I realize that in, in the so-called modern period in which you and I live, where we turn to science to explain everything, and if science can't explain it, then it doesn't happen. That's the way we look at things, and that's fine. I'm all in favor of science. This is not in any way, shape, or form to be taken as anti-science, okay? But I also happen to believe in miracles. But I also happen to believe that the miraculous is way bigger than we think it is, right? We tend to define a miracle as something that happens that we can't explain or that is outside of our normal understanding of things, right? Uh, there was a time when people would have said that uh, for a human being to fly would have been a miracle, but we fly today or a time when a human being here could talk to a human being on the other side of the planet in real time. That would be a miracle, right? Going to the moon. I'm not so sure that we actually went to the moon. I think that was a, that was a government, no. <laughs> right? So there is a way to explain a lot of the miracles, not all of them, not all of them, but there is a way to explain a lot of the miracles by saying, this is something that is scientifically possible, okay? But the prior question is, who made, who made the wood? That's a, that would be a good sermon title. Y'all forget that you heard this conversation, okay? Um, who, you want credit for this? Yes, yes, there we go. Can I give you credit for all my bad sermons too? Yeah. Oh, there we go, okay. Um, God... God shows Moses and God provides for the people through his natural creation. We talk about mother nature as if that's something different from God. Well, who created nature? God, okay? There is an idea that runs through the scriptures that says that when God created everything, God made everything so that it would work perfectly. And so that when it didn't work perfectly, that that we could make it work perfectly or we could arrange and organize things so that it would work perfectly then. Um, just yesterday, I was having a conversation with yet another physician who admitted that doctors don't heal people. Doctors create the conditions in which healing can occur, but healing occurs because that's what happens naturally. Again, who created Nature, God. So when we talk about the miraculous over against the natural, what the Bible wants to do is put them together and say there's no difference in many ways, okay? In the case of the, we'll read this in a, in a minute and we'll talk more about it, but in the case of uh, the manna, right? God gives manna. Well, in the Middle East, apparently, I'm, I'm just telling you what other people have said. I'm like Moses. It wasn't my idea for us to go across the Red Sea. This was God's idea, okay? I'm just telling you what I've read. There is a certain kind of tree that sometimes is infested with a certain kind of insect, and that insect secretes a substance that is whitish and milkyish and tastes kind of sweet like honey and is full of carbohydrates and sugar, and there are certain ancient tribes in the Middle East that will eat this stuff because it's nutritious. And the stuff spoils very quickly. 
Maybe that's what the manna is. Okay? In the Middle East, flocks of quail will start to migrate and fly, and sometimes they'll go over the Mediterranean Sea, but there will be storms on the sea that will blow them inland, and they've been flying against the wind for so long that they're exhausted and they fall to the ground and they can't move anymore for a while, and you can just go pick them up and eat them. Okay? Maybe that explains the quail. Who knows? Does that mean it was not a miracle? No, that means that God used God's creation in the way that God wanted to, to take care of the people. What a beautiful thought. That does not mean that God cannot directly intervene in order to contradict the natural laws that he created in order to make something else happen. But it is one way to explain at least some of the story. Does that all make sense to you? What Israel saw, what Israel saw is what we don't see. Israel saw that everything actually is a miracle. Everything is a miracle. Now, we don't think that way, right? Say, no, I made that table. I'm the one who put the ointment on the wound and it healed. I'm the one who did this stuff, right? We can explain it naturally. No, everything begins with the supernatural. Everything begins with a miracle. Go back to Genesis 1, 1. There was nothing. And then all of a sudden there was something because God said there would be. What is that if that's not a miracle? Right? So the fact that we live, the fact that we exist, the fact that we are is a miracle. And God is restoring it all. That's part of the story that's going on here. Notice then, the people have water for a while. God never gives us provisions for forever. Have you noticed that? How many of you have enough savings to last the rest of your life? You hope you do. You hope you do. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Oh, if the meteor comes, you're good. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. You, you can't have enough savings to last the rest of your life because you don't know what's going to happen, right? You can't guarantee your life. So God gives us enough for today, and that's all we have. God then says, God gives them this water, and then the Lord makes for them a statute and an ordinance to put them to the test. If you will listen carefully and to me and do what is right and keep my commandments and statutes, I will not bring upon you any of the diseases that I brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. When I think it was Jan who took, took us through the plagues, all that terrible stuff that happened. And one way to understand all of those plagues is that God is making it so the world does not act the way the world is supposed to act. The river turns into blood and frogs come raining down from the sky and blah, 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 blah. All of creation is going to you know where in a handbasket because the Egyptians, the Pharaoh, will not admit that he's God and will not do what God says. So everything falls apart. Now that God has rescued some of the people, God is going to put creation back together again. He's going to give them water. He's going to feed them. He's not going to allow what happened to the Egyptians to happen to the Jews. 
He's going to put creation back together again. And he's going to teach them. God gives a statute, an ordinance. Just a fancy way of saying a law, right? Where did God give us his laws? Where's the big story in Exodus? The, the 15 commandments, right? On, on Mount Sinai. You've seen the Monty Python movie, right? <laughs> Do you know about the Monty Python? Do you guys know about that movie? Yeah, Moses is coming down the mountain carrying three tablets with five laws written on each one of them, 15 commandments. He drops one. Oops, I guess it's just 10 now. So, absolutely. You know, people think of that, oh, that's sacrilegious. No, it's funny. God begins to teach the people. One of the major themes, one of the major reasons for the wandering in the wilderness is so that God can teach the people who they are supposed to be. Think about this. If you have been living your whole life and your mommy and daddy before you and their mommy and daddy before them, back however many generations it takes to get to 400 years, and you've been living in a culture dominated not by the worship of the one true living God, but some other culture, some other religion, some other system, then that means you don't know anything about your own God, or very little. And so one of the reasons God takes the people out into the wilderness is so that they can learn, so that he can teach. That's actually a principle that is repeated uh, not just for the nation of Israel, but then for the Christian church and actually for individual Christians, right? We need to leave where we are sometimes and go to a special place where there's nothing so that we can pay attention to God. In a way, Israel was going on a 40-year retreat. How many of you have been on a retreat? You've been on, right, right. You, you eat s'mores and you sing camp songs and you do all kinds of silly tricks on each other. Uh, that ain't what a retreat's about. Israel's going on a retreat, right? If you'll listen carefully to my voice, not Pharaoh anymore, not whatever else you were listening to, to my voice and do what is right, I am the one who is going to heal you. Healing right? God is, God is restoring civil rights. God is restoring justice to the people. And it's talked about as healing. Isn't that interesting? Society is broken. Life is broken. And God is healing that again. It's not going to be an easy thing for the, for the people to go through. It's going to be hard, but they're going to go through it. Okay, so then they come to Elim. They walk around for a while, and they come to a place where there are 12 springs of water, just like the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples. You'll see the number 12 all of, all of the time. I'll give credit to Suhail Khalil at the men's Bible study this morning for pointing out 12 springs of water and then 70 palm trees. 70 palm trees. Do you remember that it was 70 disciples that Luke tells us Jesus sent out in groups of two, 35 teams of two people Jesus sent out to talk about the good news, to preach and teach and heal? That number 70 is important in there. Okay, all of that is going on here. Let us, uh, let's keep reading. Chapter 16. 
The whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elim, and Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Not, not Sin as uh, the things that you guys do all the time, but, but just a name, okay? The whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elim, and Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained, here we go again, complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Let's stop there for just a second. This is about nostalgia. How many of you are nostalgic for the good old days? Yes. Why, why does nostalgia exist? Why do you think we are nostalgic? I, it's a coping mechanism. Yeah? Say it again. Comforting. It's comforting to look at the past, right? It's comforting to look at the good stuff in the past, not the bad stuff in the past, right? Yeah. Yeah, we're safe. Yeah. I, I, think, I think we are nostalgic because we know we made it. Regardless of how much bad stuff was going on, and there was plenty in the past, we know that we made it. And we don't know that we're going to make it because the meteorite's going to come down, right? They always say, just remember, no matter how bad your day is, these are the good old days. These are, yes, these are tomorrow's good old days. Exactly. Exactly. So there's a certain sense of nostalgia that, that is, is, is understandable, but nostalgia is also in some ways, don't, don't get me wrong, I, I love stuff from the past, um, but there's a certain sense in which nostalgia is sinful because it trusts God for what has already happened. Okay, you did this, I trust you, but it does not trust God for what might happen. It doesn't trust God for the future, right? That, and that, that's part of what this story is about. God does amazing things. Why are you worried about tomorrow? But I am worried about tomorrow, so are you. Okay, let's keep going. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. What had already rained from heaven? The frogs, well, the, the quail are coming, yes, but, but, but back in Egypt... What, what, what were all the, the locusts, frogs, lots of stuff came down. Okay, now it's going to be bed, bread. And each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way, I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. That's the real point of this. Are we going to follow God's instructions? On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaining against the Lord. For what are we that you complain against us? Right? All of this is going to happen so that the people will get to know who God is. Right? Moses said, when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and your fill of bread in the morning, because the Lord has heard the complaining that you utter against him, what are we? Your complaining is not against us, but against the Lord. Moses is a great leader. He always deflects things back to God. 
Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the Israelites, Draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Israelites, they looked toward the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. So say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, what is it? By the way, that's literally what manna means, not bread originally, but what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each of you needs, an omer to a person, according to the number of persons, all providing for those in their own tents. The Israelites did so, some gathering more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, those who gathered much had nothing over, and those who gathered little had no shortage. They gathered as much as each of them needed. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. They did not listen. Did you hear that? (laughs) They did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it as much as each needed. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. By the way, that, that secreted substance from those insects that I told you about... It spoils very quickly. It's just like this. Isn't that interesting? On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, two omers apiece. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not become foul, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, and they found none. The Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and instructions? See, The Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you food for two days. Each of you stay where you are. Do not leave your place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The house of Israel called it manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations in order that they may see the food with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the covenant for safekeeping. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a habitable land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is a tenth of an ephah. I love that. Let's memorize that scripture. Shouldn't we do that? What's your favorite verse in the Bible? And Omer is a tenth of an ephah. (laughs) 
Oh, my. What's that? I, I don't know. Look it up. <laughs> I don't know. An ephah is about that much. I, <laughs> I know that an omer is a tenth of it. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Yes. 9.3 cups. Is an ephah or an omer? That's an omer. Okay. So multiply that by time. Uh, by 10. So that means 93 cups. Is my math right? You notice I'm not a mathematician. Okay, very interesting. Okay, so what's going on? We've already talked. Yes. I think it's interesting that for 40 years they ate manna and they didn't complain. For 40 years they ate manna and they didn't complain. There we go. <laughs> for a long time, that's what they had. Was See, we would complain because we want more variety in our diet. Right? You want some pizza. Oh, God. <laughs> Go complain to Moses about it. Don't complain to me. <laughs> okay. God gives very specific instructions. Do this, do this, do that. The people don't do it. Eventually, they start, right? It is very likely, I, I will agree with, with some folks who say that, you know, in real time, did God give all of these specific instructions to Moses and say, boom, here it is? I think we see evidence in this text that the people began to practice the Sabbath. They began to understand that they needed a day of rest, that God gave them a day of rest, that what does the Bible say, that on the seventh day God himself rested. And we see reflection here of a highly developed liturgy and cultural practice that in some sense maybe is imported back into this story, but the origin of the story, the true meaning of the story is there from the very beginning. God gives you how much? Give us this day our daily bread. Not tomorrow's bread. Except on Friday, give us Saturday's bread. Remember the Jewish Sabbath is on our Saturday. Don't worry too much about that. Right? Give us this day our daily bread. On the seventh day, you'll do what I did. Do you notice this? This is an important thing because I, in, the, in the Protestant tradition that I grew up in, that most of you grew up in, Sabbath is almost entirely lost. Uh, Sabbath is a spiritual practice. It's something that God gives to us to do that's good for us. And if we don't do it, it's bad for us. It's very simple. For six days, we are meant to work to, I call it, make life happen, right? If you don't work, life does not happen, Right? You have to work to make life happen using the creation that God gave you in the first place, right? On the seventh day, you are meant not to work. You do not make life happen. One day out of seven, we are meant to sit there and say, I'm not going to make life happen because who does make life happen? God. God makes life happen. That's very difficult for type A personalities to get their minds wrapped around. But that's what Sabbath is about, right? God is teaching them. Again, God is teaching them uh, about the Sabbath. The seventh day, the people rest. Okay, let's keep going. Chapter 17. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Oh, here we go again. We're out of water. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. 
Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. By the way, reports of that being my prayer continuously, what shall I do with this people? Those reports may or may not be true. Let's keep on going. So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Every single day you begin to get the feeling that every single day the people question whether God's going to take care of them even though God has continuously taken care of them, right? The staff with which Moses had touched the water of the Nile and turned it into blood now is the staff that gives fresh, delicious, sweet water that we put in little plastic bottles and carry everywhere with, I don't know. And the people live. This is, this is the reversal of the destruction of creation. It is the restoration of the way creation is meant to be. And Israel is the beneficiary of that. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? God takes care of the people. Okay, there's some wonderful questions at the end of this. What questions, what thoughts, what, what exciting stuff is going on inside you right now? We'll take just a few minutes to chat about those things. Anything there? There doesn't have to be. As always, there are profound, life-changing questions at the end of this study. You find it interesting their faith does not grow. Yeah, yeah, their faith does not grow. Well, welcome to life. It, it's uh, I, certainly, certainly faith can grow. Faith does grow, but not always, not everyone. And sometimes it grows for a while, and then sometimes it shrinks. I've heard plenty of stories that, you know, people, you know, I used to have a lot of trust in the Lord, but I don't so much anymore. Usually because something didn't go my way. Yeah, good Good, good point, good point. Yes, over here. So it's simplistic, but is it fair to say that the cure to all disease and illness lies in nature and it's for us to discover? Yeah, very good question, very good question. Can we say that the answer to all disease, all the issues of nature, the, the, the solution is there, we just haven't found it, right? Right? Um, I think that even though it is simplistic, I think that is fair to say. Is it, is it absolutely 100% true for everything? I, I have no way of knowing. Nobody does. But isn't that what science actually is, right? Human science is trying to discover the way the world works. By world, I mean all the created universe, right? And, and use it in such a way that it then works to create life. It works to our advantage rather than to destroy. That's pretty much what, what human science is all about. Um, and we, we need to note 
Um, and, and it's fascinating, Vicki, that you asked this question. We need to note that science originally in the Western world after Christ was most, uh, uh, most energetically pursued by people who also had deep faith, right? Copernicus and Galileo and all those guys were people who believed in an orderly creation that had been made by a superior intelligence, okay? And they believed that they could begin to discover what that orderliness was and begin to discover the intelligence behind the creation. Even, even people like Albert Einstein would believe that, or people like Francis Collins, our contemporary, right? Um, not all scientists are atheists, even so some atheistic scientists want to tell you that all scientists are atheists, and science, science itself is not, a, is, is not atheist, right? S human science depends on there being order to creation. If creation is just random, then we can't discover anything about how it works because it's random. We discover how it works if it's always the same. And if it's not always the same, it's just because we don't understand how orderly it is and where that order exists. And so the, the pursuit of science is a holy pursuit. It is a holy pursuit, uh, especially as it is applied to producing good. Now, the problem with human science is we use human science for bad things too. Okay, but that's our problem. That's not science's problem. That's our problem. That's not God's problem. Well, it is God's problem because we are God's problem. <laughs> so, yes, exactly, exactly. Does it apply across the board? I don't think we'll ever be able to say, but then that's seeing to the end of all creation and the, the, the design behind everything, which um, I'm, I'm almost there. I'm not quite there, but I'll get there soon, and I'll let you know what I find out. Yeah, good. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that sounds like it's the beginning. It sounds like it's the beginning of the I don't know what you call it not the not the re religion or or the practice of the of right yeah 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 the organization yeah of the Israelites Moses takes some of the elders with him right some of the some of the senior leadership so to speak um, but but we have not yet encountered the story where Moses is in charge of everything and he can't handle all the problems that are brought to him. And his father-in-law Jethro says, appoint elders, right? Appoint other leaders. We're not there yet, but here they're but, talked about yeah, as elders. About There's two things possible with that. One is that the, the phrase here simply refers to uh, some of the other people who were leading at that point, or more likely, it refers to the fact that language and thought and understanding of what was going on in this story has, uh, has crept backwards into the story. Does that make sense to you? The same thing with the Sabbath, all this focus on the Sabbath. You know, maybe Moses, I, I think Moses probably started talking about the Sabbath with the people. And then when he went up the mountain and came down, he said, see here, I've been telling you this stuff. God's been telling you, but now it's written in stone. Okay. So, most scholars will agree that in all of the scriptures, we see, the, in a sense, the original story, but it's told from the perspective of looking backward, and lots of, get, lots of information gets put in from, from 
from the future, so to speak, if you will. Does that mean the story is not true? No. The story in its depth of what it's trying to tell us is truly true. Yeah. And it is, it is, uh, as you rightly note, um, it is God teaching the people a whole new way of living, new to them, right? Where leadership is shared, okay? Where responsibility is given to those who have have proven the ability to accept responsibility at, at, at different levels, where it's not just one person, but it's multiple people who are involved in leadership, right? Remember that Israel had just come from a situation where Pharaoh was the absolute Lord and ruler of everything. If Pharaoh said it, it happened. If he said it was not going to happen, it did not happen. There was It was, it was an absolute uh, authoritarian, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a, a, a dictatorship. Yes, thank you very much. A dictatorship. Israel learns that it is not meant to, that human society is not meant to be ruled and governed by a dictatorship. Okay? If you want to get political with that, go ahead. Uh, it's, <laughs> any kind of politics. So. Okay, you've got to go Christmas shopping. Let's pray. God, thanks for being with us today. Help us to be part of a wonderful celebration of this season learning all over again what it's all about and sharing with others and sharing the joy of knowing Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. See you at the luncheon next week, if the meteorite doesn't strike. <laughs>